Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everybody. We're going to get started. So before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting tonight, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. They've been sharing their knowledge and wisdom on this site for millennia. So as we share our knowledge tonight, may we also remember the indigenous wisdom embedded in this land forever. On behalf of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre and our co-hosts, the Centre for Asia-Pacific Law and Sydney Ideas, I'd like to welcome you all here tonight for our discussion on corruption in Indonesia, current events, challenges and prospects. And this evening we're very fortunate to have three eminent experts on corruption in Indonesia with us. So uh, I'd like to welcome Professor Todongulia Lubis, um, Dr. Laude Sharif and Professor Simon Butt um, as our three speakers tonight. So the way that tonight will work is each speaker will have 20 minutes um, to present um, their work or some of their thoughts. I'll introduce each of them as they come up and then at the end we'll have time for question and answer and I'm sure that you'll have a lot of questions um, by the end of the presentations. So I'd like to invite our first speaker tonight up, um, Professor Simon Butt, who is a professor of Indonesian law here at the University of Sydney Law School. He currently holds a future fellowship and is working on a project researching Indonesia's anti-corruption courts. He's written very widely on Indonesian law, um, including books on the constitutional court and democracy in Indonesia, corruption and law in Indonesia, and the Constitution of Indonesia, a contextual analysis with co-author Tim Lindsay. Please welcome Simon Butt. Well, thank you very much, Liz. Just let me, uh, there we go. Uh, and welcome all to the uh, seminar today. As Liz says, my name's Simon. Um, and <coughs> it is very true when you say, well, one of my areas, one of my interest is judicial corruption in Indonesia. I know a lot, of, a lot about it. Um, people start to ask a lot of questions about what you really do and uh, any back channels that you might have uh, that they might be able to take advantage of. Uh, but before starting on my talk today, I wanted to just say how happy I am to have both Professor Todong Lubis and Dr. Lorde Sharif here at Sydney. Um, Sharif is no stranger to Sydney University. He got his doctorate in law here uh, some time ago. Uh, but life is very hectic in the Kapeka, which is where Lode Sharif now works, the Anti-Corruption Commission. And um, so I really appreciate him taking the time to come uh, to speak with us today, uh, particularly in light of what's been happening over the last few days in the, on the anti-corruption uh, scene in Indonesia. Uh, and this ongoing uh, battle between the Kapeka and the National Parliament. I'm sure we'll hear all about that when uh, Sharif talks, but terima kasih banyak for coming. Uh, and to Prof Mulya, I know you've been here a few times to Sydney University, but it's the first time that I've, uh, you've been here since I've been working here. Um, of course, you are one of uh, Indonesia's best uh, lawyers, generally. Uh, particularly human rights, but also anti-corruption um, campaigners. 
I think your scholarship is a bit underestimated, uh, perhaps outside of Indonesia. Um, I remember re reading your book. In fact, you can see quite how much I enjoyed reading his book <laughs> over, over the years. The, the, all the pages fall out. Uh, as, a, as an inspiring author, I thank you, uh, Professor um, uh, Mulia, for you know, writing what I think is this is he's in search of human rights. What is the most important legal analysis published during the Suharto era? Uh, I've been wanting to ask you to sign it. I've been a bit malu because it's so ragged, but uh, perhaps I'll persevere this evening. All right. So um, I, as Liz said, have been, excuse me, um, doing some research on Indonesia's anti-corruption legal infrastructure, and particularly more recently the anti-corruption courts, um, particularly in rural areas of Indonesia. Now, for most of Indonesia's independent history, corruption cases have been, have been dealt with by ordinary general courts, uh, and the cases have been brought by ordinary prosecutors, investigated by ordinary police. But in 2004, a Jakarta anti-corruption court, a special court, was established now it's the sole feeder for Kapekao Anti-Corruption Commission investigations and prosecutions. Um, but general prosecutors continued to prosecute corruption cases in ordinary courts. From 2011, uh, new anti-corruption courts were established in capital cities of all of, 30, of th Indonesia's 34 provincial capitals. And these courts now have exclusive jurisdiction to hear all corruption cases, whether brought by the KPK or ordinary prosecutors. Now, in my opinion, these regional anti-corruption uh, courts don't get that much media attention or scholarly attention. And when they do, it's usually for something bad, like one of its judges being caught in the act by the Kapeka receiving a bribe. Here's a, a picture of an ad hoc judge from Benkulu being taken away after a kapeka sting. They also attract attention when they acquit defendants or when the Supreme Court complains about the poor quality of candidates applying to work in these courts. Most media and scholarly attention seems to focus on the corruption trials taking place in the Jakarta anti-corruption court rather than these regional Courts. And I suppose this is understandable because Jakarta is Indonesia's capital city and many of the bigger high-profile cases of corruption occur there. But I think this Jakarta-centric view is a bit unfortunate because, by most accounts, corruption in regional areas is as rampant as ever. These regional courts, therefore, pay, uh, play an important function. And I think if we're to get a complete picture of the progress of anti-corruption efforts in Indonesia, we need to examine the work of these regional courts more closely. I'm currently working with uh, members of the Anti-Corruption Study Centre at UGM to examine how some of these regional anti-corruption courts are performing. Now, we're only partway through our data collection, so my presentation today is more of a, an explanation of the rationale for the research rather than the presentation of findings. Uh, it's quite a big task. Um, but what we're looking at is the type of corruption cases these regional courts are hearing, um, who's investigating and prosecuting those cases, who the judges are that are hearing uh, and deciding the cases, 
whether these courts are convicting defendants or not, and what types of punishments they're handing down. Um, most of this has been, um, if not ignored, I think understudied. And part of the exercise will be developing a matrix for assessing judicial performance in Indonesia and elsewhere. Um, for the anti-corruption courts, uh, in Indonesia at least, um, these, uh, sorry, their performance is, is assessed almost exclusively by conviction rates. Now I'm sure there are many factors we need to consider when we measure judicial performance, but I'm convinced that conviction rates shouldn't be one of them for reasons I'll talk about later on. Another part of the research is considering whether having specialised corruption courts and ad hoc judges, I'll explain them in a minute, within the general court system adds any benefit at all. Indonesia is one of the very few countries throughout the world that has specialised corruption courts um, and we just don't know whether they work, I think. Has integrity improved or has ex expertise increased? as law reformers expected that they would when they designed and established these courts? To, to answer these questions, or at least begin answering them, and to explain why I think Indonesia's anti-corruption courts are so important and need greater uh, academic attention, I think we need to go back a few years to the fall of Suharto in 1998. Now, as many of you know, uh, Suharto uh, ruled Indonesia uh, for more than 30 years, his uh, system was authoritarian, backed by a strong military. Corruption was prevalent and a significant portion of illicit funds made their way to Suharto, his family and his inner circle. Suharto alone is estimated to have creamed between 10 and 35 billion US dollars during his rule. And this, I think, doesn't include the countless billions reaped by his family and friends. Corruption was rampant in government institutions that didn't receive sufficient budget allocations. It was prevalent amongst uh, underpaid government officials, uh, many of who have who participated in what I think is described best as the Suharto franchise, the, uh, a, a, a phrase that was coined by an academic at ANU, Ross McLeod, under which unofficial payments and kickbacks could be received by recipients with, with immunity, with legal immunity, provided that a portion of the proceeds were passed up through one's superiors, hence the franchise model. The courts were particularly bad, with prominent lawyers likening them to auction houses where the highest bidder would win the case. Now when Suharto fell, uh, the dismantling of the pillars of his authoritarian system began. Popular disdain was fully expressed on Indonesia's streets and this was even felt in the offices of government. Here we can see a picture of students occupying the National Parliament building. You can see, uh, if you can read Indonesian and have great vision, uh, there's a, a, a sign up in the, on the left-hand side there that uh, <coughs> protesting against the corruption of the Suharto regime. Now, it's, I think, easy to uh, underestimate or understate the importance of the, the, the unrest that was going on at this time. Uh, many politicians and commentators thought that Indonesia might balkanise or break up unless meaningful um, reform along democratic lines was achieved in the post-Sahado period. So we had free elections in 1999 which filled the parliament with um, many real reformists who had been in opposition under Suharto and some of those who had thrived under Suharto but truly feared 
that failure to achieve progress uh, along reformist lines would likely lead to revolt and even the dismantling of the state. For them, they might end up with no power at all unless they gave something uh, in support of reformist demands. So on this analysis, uh, uh, the first waves of post-Sahato governance reform were wide-ranging and perhaps the most genuine in Indonesian history. And it was during this heady reformasi period that calls for anti-corruption reform reached fever pitch. The idea for an independent anti-corruption commission with real power crystallised and preparations for its establishment commenced. Now it's, it's worth noting that uh, at this point, Indonesia certainly had no shortage of uh, anti-corruption agencies and commissions, even during the Sahato period. But they were usually um, kind of put down as public relations exercises to quell public anger after the media revealed government corruption. The main problem with them was that they were really task, force, task forces uh, uh, located within existing police and prosecution, prosecution services. Uh, and many prosecutors and police were themselves thought and said to be corrupt. Um, I think uh, Professor uh, Mulia will talk about the legal mafia uh, in his presentation, which is you know, this collective of judges, lawyers, prosecutors, etc., that uh, said to get together to fix the outcomes of cases. And you can hardly have an anti-corruption drive led by corrupt police and corrupt prosecutors, which is what this model was following. Uh, in fact, police and prosecutors were notorious for in receiving bribes to drop corruption cases. And, of course, there's no point uh, prosecuting a, a corruption case before a judge who's likely to be bribable as well. As some reformists put it, you can't clean a floor with a dirty broom. And so with what appeared to be very genuine intentions, reform intentions, the KPK and the Jakarta Typical Court, the Jakarta Corruption Court, were born. These, these institutions were designed from the start, because of the political context I've just outlined, to be strong and independent. Although some would say that in recent times, uh, perhaps there's been a bit of backsliding in terms of the support for these institutions and they're in peril. One of the crowning achievements of this reform was taking serious corruption cases away from these ordinary police prosecutors and judges. And this was actually specified in the law that established the KPK. It said quite directly that previous involvement by these law enforcers uh, in handling corruption cases was one of the reasons why corruption reform had stalled. Uh, the KPK, by contrast, has its own investigators and prosecutors, and its primary task, at least in terms of law enforcement, is investigating and prosecuting serious corruption cases, leaving run-of-the-mill uh, corruption cases to general prosecutors. And this independence seemed to have worked. The KPK is quite rightly, I think, widely regarded as one of the most successful post-Sahado institutional reforms, if not the most successful. And against the expectations of most, in just over a dozen years, the KPK has fearlessly and successfully prosecuted very high-profile figures, as I think Mulya will explain, including this gentleman here, the, the serving chairperson of the Constitutional Court in 2013. Quite ironically, 
pictured here reading a book on eradicating corruption. Uh, <coughs> he was uh, eventually uh, convicted of, uh, of corruption and sentenced to the highest term of imprisonment, life imprisonment, uh, ever uh, in Indonesian corruption history. But, and I might be getting a bit controversial here for Sharif, um, the KPK's success uh, is surprising, I think, not just for the fact that it's managed to land big fish. Also surprising, I think, is its 100% success rate. Now, it's prosecuted over 400 cases, and it's won every one of them. The KPK has done this despite very strong pushback from some of those it's prosecuted, and I think um, some of the speakers tonight will discuss this. So how has the KPK, in light of this prevalent corruption, this corruption reform failure of the past, managed to achieve this success? Well, it's traditionally been attributed to two main things. The first is that before 2011, all of the KPK's prosecutions were presented before a single corruption court located in Jakarta. Ordinary prosecutors retained power to prosecute, but in, uh, before 2011, they could only do this in ordinary courts, before ordinary judges, not in this special corruption court in Jakarta. Now, the corruption court in Jakarta used ad hoc judges, uh, three on each five-judge panel. I think most of them have been traditionally former lawyers who have decided to uh, come to the bench. And the idea was to take away the ultimate decision in any given case from the, take away the, the decision making from career judges who were suspected of being corrupt and susceptible to bribery. But at the same, same time recognising that having professional judges or at least um, experienced judges with judicial experience uh, was necessary for the running, the smooth running of trials. The second reason often cited for the KPK's success was that it had high investigative and prosecutorial standards, at least relative to ordinary police and prosecutors. I don't think Charlie would uh, object to me saying that. This, the KPK claims, is born out of comprehensive training, stringent evidence handling processes, meticulous preparation and the like. Now, of course, not everyone sees this 100% conviction rate as a success. Some of the defence lawyers I've spoken to, and of course their clients, uh, commonly complain that the KPK cannot simply have got it right 100% of the time, and that somehow, somewhere along the line, the presumption of innocence was being compromised. This line hasn't got much traction in Indonesia, with many saying that corruption is a big problem, requires um, strong action, collateral damage can th thus be justified. Now, in 2009, the National Parliament legislated to require the Supreme Court to establish these re regional anti-corruption courts in 34 provincial capitals. This was achieved in 2011. They have jurisdiction to hear all anti-corruption anti and all corruption cases, uh, including those brought by the KPK and ordinary prosecutors. Now, the optimist might say, this is great. If the success of the central Jakarta anti-corruption court could be replicated across all of Indonesia, then surely this would be a good thing. But a more realistic view 
is probably that the parliamentarians that established these new courts by legislation did so as part of a deliberate strategy to weaken Indonesia's anti-corruption framework. And <coughs> this is probably because many parliamentarians at the time the law was passed were either under KPK investigation themselves for corruption or a member of a political party whose members were under investigation. My theory is that they feared that the Jakarta Anti-Corruption Court was becoming too powerful and so they wanted to deconcentrate this anti-corruption drive. I think they thought that having corruption trials in regional areas would make them more difficult to monitor, making improper interference in proceedings more feasible. Well, what's happened? Uh, we were a bit worried that um, these courts wouldn't perform well, uh, but has it worked out that way? Well, initially this plan, um, which, uh, uh, sorry, let me just work back. Um, just, just, to, just to return to this point, uh, Mr Page here. Um, I think the parliamentarians also like the idea that having regional corruption courts would allow general, prosecution, general prosecutors to prosecute in them. The KPK doesn't have enough resources to prosecute um, in 34 parts of Indonesia. And this therefore brings the spectre of uh, bribery back into the equation. Um, if general prosecutors can now prosecute in corruption courts, then it's possible that defendants can bribe their way out of, out of trouble. Um, I think that these under siege politicians um, thought that regional anti-corruption courts might help bring the anti-corruption movement back to square one, back to the place it was before the KPK was in existence. That is where ordinary prosecutors and judges tended to rule the roost beyond the reach of the KPK. Now, how has this worked? How have the regional um, anti-corruption courts performed thus far? Well, initially it didn't seem uh, that was going to work very well. Um, the, one of the first cases brought by a general prosecutor in uh, the Jakarta Corruption Court, after general prosecutors were allowed to bring their cases before the anti-corruption courts, resulted in an acquittal. And up to this point, only the KPK had been bringing cases before this court and every case had resulted in a conviction. So reformers thought that this was the death knell of the anti-corruption movement. Uh, and a trend seemed to be evolving uh, where regional anti-corruption courts were convicting um, more than people were, were hoping. 15% um, of cases in 2001 um, resulted in acquittals. Um, here you can see pictures of defendants shaking hands after uh, being acquitted. And if I'm not mistaken, they're shaking hands with prosecutors here. So things didn't bode very weren't voting very well. Uh, there was also uh, a lot of controversy about the integrity of these courts. Um, critics uh, <coughs> worried that these anti-corruption court judges were themselves corrupt and soon after they, they um, soon after the courts began their work several uh, 
uh, of the judges were picked up for bribery, caught in the act by the anti-corruption court, leading some commentators to uh, propose that these corruption courts be disbanded altogether. Um, another early fear initially raised was that there was a shortage of ad hoc judges. Uh, now they had, to, they had to be spread around 34 regional courts. And this would mean that they might be forced to make up minorities on, um, on corruption court panels. If you remember, the, the, the Jakarta court always had a majority of, of ad hoc judges on panels. The fear was that they might be outnumbered by career judges, again, the corrupt, well, thought to be corrupt judges. Uh, on these regional courts. Um, has this all, how has this all panned out? Well, I think there's been a bit of hysteria about the integrity of ad hoc judges. Um, I'm not sure whether there's any evidence that ad hoc judges are any worse than other Indonesian judges. The KPK has ensnared many other judges working in other courts. Uh, also, in, in, in more recent years, there have been fewer arrests of ad hoc judges. There were a lot at the start of these courts operations, but it seems to have petered off a bit, although I note that uh, only a couple of weeks ago, uh, one in Bengkulu was arrested by the KPK. So integrity remains a problem, but I'm not quite sure if it's as bad as um, initially thought. Um, concerns about the lack of good quality ad hoc judges. Uh, I think it's pretty hard to determine whether this is the case or not. Um, and if so, how this may have affected their decision making. Again, the real question here, I think, is whether they are any better or worse than general court judges. And as far as I know, no one's attempted to comprehensively critique their judgments. Um, it's something I'm planning to do as part of my research. Now, as for panel representation, that fear that um, uh, ad hoc judges might be out, outnumbered on, on benches uh, by career judges. Uh, I'm not sure that that has borne out. Uh, we've managed to crunch through 1,050 cor corruption cases hosted on the Supreme Court website, and we've found that only 5% or so uh, had ad hoc judges as a minority on the... Uh, sorry, as a, as a minority on the, on the bench. In other words, sorry, I've cut that all mixed up. Only 5% did not have ad hoc judges as a majority. So this whole this trend of having ad hoc judges as a majority has, has continued for, for the vast majority of, of cases. And even some cases had complete... Um, the, judge, the, the, the panels were um, made up entirely of ad hoc judges. And that raises other problems. Um, also going by the cases I've... Um, I've studied thus far, the acquittal rate of the corruption courts is only about 10%. So it seems to have dropped from that 15% level. Now, as I've mentioned, I think there are much better indicators of judicial performance, like adherence to procedure, clear identification of the relevant facts and law, consistency in sentency and reasoned decision-making. In fact, to me, 10% seems a little low especially given that general prosecutors are now able to um, prosecute before these courts. Much research needs to be done, but all in all, perhaps we can say the performance of the anti-corruption courts isn't as bad as initially expected. The biggest remaining problem, I think, 
appears to be the generally light sentences that have traditionally been handed down in corruption cases. But I'll have to leave that story for another day. Thank you very much. Okay, so now it's time to invite our second speaker up um, for his presentation. Um, just uh, Simon did uh, a little bit of an introduction to Professor Todo Murian Lubis. Um, clearly, he's a big fan. Um, but just to give you a little bit more background, um, Professor Lubis is a legal scholar and one of Indonesia's leading human rights lawyers. He has had a distinguished legal career in Indonesia in Indonesia's Legal Aid Institute. Um, which he directed in the early 80s, and then in private practice. He's also worked on some very high-profile cases, including being the Indonesian defense lawyer for Myron Sukumaran and Andrew Chan. He has held senior government appointments, and he is also currently the head of Transparency International Indonesia. So please welcome Professor Lubis up to the podium. First of all, let me express my thanks to Professor Simon Lapp for a very kind introduction and for organizing this seminar. I have not been to Sydney for quite a while, and it is always nice to be back here in Sydney, meeting old friends and visiting the university. Simon asked me to speak about the current issues of fighting corruption in Indonesia, challenges and prospects. I'm complimenting what has been presented by, by Simon, because Simon has already made a very good presentation. And I'm glad I have my friend Laudem Sharif here, commissioner of KTK, so I can refer to him to answer your questions if I cannot answer yours. <laughs> and I believe he's the right person to answer your question. So let me begin by describing where Indonesia is as far as corruption is concerned. This is my take. As you know, corruption is still endemic, very systemic, and widespread. Our corruption perception index, according to Transparency International, is 38. No, it's 38 now. Last year was 37. I'm more updated than you. <laughs> I checked the Transparency International. Just one? Yeah, just one. And it means that our fight to combat corruption has not been successful, even though we commenced our war against corruption since the Reformasi era. <coughs> so corruption is still there, business as usual. And I don't know how many people have been caught <coughs> and sentenced and jailed by KTK. But to my observations, there's no deterrent effect of all this 
the tangent of all these operations. I'm not saying that we should not do it. We have to do it more and more, you know, aggressively. But again, you know, that's what has been happening. Corruption is still endemic business as usual. While KPK was established in 2003, if I'm not mistaken, the law was enacted in 2002, and it means we have been seriously fighting corruption for at least 15 years now. Again, please uh, keep in mind that even under new order, we did fight corruption. There have been a number of institutions set up by President Suharto at the time to fight corruption. But only KPK, in my opinion, seriously fight corruption and did a great deal and quite successful. Never in our history have we arrested and jailed so many people because of corruption. I'm talking mainly about grand corruption. I'm talking about big fish. I'm not talking about petty corruption because if I include petty corruption, then perhaps we are talking about Negara corruption or corrupt state. I don't think we are at that stage yet. As I said earlier, there's been no deterrent effect of all the repressive action of KPK. Worse, there are signs of the phenomenon of the so-called state capture corruption, in which state is being hijacked by widespread corruption at the central level as well as at the regional level. Not only the bureaucracy that is being hijacked, the judiciary as well is also being hijacked by all this corrupt official and politician. One can see what has happened with so many cases where the court acquitted corrupt individuals. Simon has mentioned you know, what happened in the regional anti-corruption court. Last week, the Speaker of Parliament has been named as suspect by the KPK, has been acquitted by the court. I know that KPK is still going after speakers, but the fact that he won the pre-trial hearing has shown that the KPK has also has uh, faced challenge from those forces among other politicians and the mafia. The phenomenon, phenomenon where the corrupt attacks the anti-corruption authorities is known as the corrupt fights back. 
Again, I don't recall the number of people arrested and jailed by the KPK. But many of them are politicians, high-ranking officials, big judges, ministers, parliamentarians, governors, and regents or mayors. Probably over 100 politicians have been arrested already. So can you imagine country where you have judges, ministers, parliamentarians, governors, regents, and mayors have been jailed for corruption. I don't know what other country can you compare if you know how many politicians and high-ranking officials been detained and jailed because of corruption. <coughs> Professor Jeffrey Winters of Northwestern University in his lecture in Jakarta. I think that was about two years ago. Talk about Indonesia being robbed by the corrupt. Despite the fact that democracy is seemingly working. However, the law does not really function properly. And I guess this is the weakest point that I would like to emphasize in my presentations. When you talk about reformasi, legal reform seems to be the one that fails. When you talk about political reform, there's been a lot of reform taking place in this country. We have elections regularly, free and fair, so to speak, yeah? less intimidation, less manipulation, your term limit of the president, you have so many auxiliary agencies established after reformacy. When you talk about legal reform, that is something you cannot be proud of. Again, let me be very clear. I'm not saying there's, there's never been an, uh, any reform. There's been a reform. But the reform is not really that significant as we expected. We need to do more. So, coming back to what Jeffrey Winter's uh, slide, let me just repeat once again that the mafia, the network of corrupt officials, politicians, seems to be quite organized in a way that they can attack KPK from every corner. Now talking about reform, just uh, let me uh, add one more few points. I guess uh, 
the establishments of the Judicial Commission of the Constitutional Court and KTK are the one that in our observation in line with the whole idea of making rule of law work in Indonesia. But ideology of rule of law, in my opinion, has never been established. And if there is no rule of law, at the end of the day, all efforts to fight corruption will not be successful. So this is what lacking. Again, I admit that KPK is quite a something, an achievement. Judicial Commission is also an achievement, as well as constitutional court. But the ideology of rule of law, that's what's lacking in Indonesia. My next slide gives you an idea about the corruption within the judiciary, judicial corruption. You see here, constitutional court justice, judges from district courts, from anti-corruption courts as well, the court clerk, Supreme Court officials, advocates, and others that work together with all these judges, like regents, mayors, governors, parliament members, and even judicial commission members, and civil servants. These are the number of people convicted for judicial corruption. Are they simply bad apples or bad mangoes? I don't think so. <coughs> Corruption is still widespread and more people and many, many lawyers, many judges are still free, but they are part of the corrupt network. So you see here two constitutional judges for justice, the high court, uh, highest court in the country sent to jail by KPK for corruption. And mind you, one of them is the Chief Justice of the Constitutional Court. Then you have 15 judges from the various district courts who were also caught by KPK for corruption. Governors, parliamentarians, bribing judges. And frankly, I don't understand how can we succeed in fighting corruption under this kind of circumstances. In Indonesia, we use the term mafia pengadilan, or court mafia, to describe how corrupt the legal apparatus are. So you see in this slide, you know, where you have black market of justice, actually, where a conviction can be born. The lawyers, the police, the prosecutors, the judges, and the broker, middlemen, are working together 
to give you judgment that you like. It depends on how much you offer. So when you listen to all the gossip in Jakarta, you know the numbers are not small. Perhaps it is important for me to underline that among all legal institutions, the KPK seems to be the one that has credibility and has earned the trust of the people. Its success story, its accomplishments in fighting corruption has been the envy of other legal institutions, parliaments and political parties. Therefore, it should not be a surprise to know that attempts to weaken KPK has been carried out from various corners of powers. Among others, we see so many judicial reviews filed, by, filed at the Constitutional Court to challenge the authority of KPK. And at the same time, the parliament has attempted to amend the law on KPK in order to revoke some clauses of KPK law. The basic idea is to limit the authority, the power of KPK. So KPK can no longer tape the phone conversations of the suspect. And if KPK has no right to Record to tape phone conversations of the suspect. It would be very difficult for KPK to go after the crowd. I think this is one of the weapons used by KPK to go after all this corruption people in Indonesia. The most recent attempt to weaken KPK is by conducting a parliamentary inquiry to a special committee called Pansus. The sole objective of the Pansus is to dissolve KPK. That's the end goal of the Pansus, of the Special uh, Inquiry Committee. And it assigns investigations of corruption cases back to the police and the prosecutors to go back to the old systems. That's why in all the statements, most of the politicians, especially, said KPK is an ad hoc institution. It should not be a permanent institution. When the, when the Attorney General Office functions properly, when the police you know, can reform itself, then all the investigations, all the prosecutions should go back to the, the police and the prosecutors. In my opinion, this may not be possible, but the Pansus has a second option. If, if they fail with this objective, the second option is to issue a recommendation to amend the law on KPK, aiming at weakening 
and curtailing most of the authority of KPK. As you know, the Pansus is still working, and it is expected that in a few months' time, the Pansu will finish its inquiry and come up with recommendations. From what I read in the media, the Pansu's intention is to limit KPK authority only to prevention. So prosecution will be the authority of the prosecutors. In other words, preliminary investigations, investigation and prosecution should not be done by KPK. So even investigations will be taken over back by the police. <coughs> One other development I would like to mention here is an attempt by the police to set up what is called Densus Anti-Corruption. A special task force on anti-corruption. I'm very suspicious about this census anti-corruption. Why out of sudden they set up this census anti-corruption? There must be something behind the idea of this agency. Again, frankly, I don't know the rationale of setting up this special task force of anti-corruption. But it may be interpreted as a preparation to take over KPK's job. Or at least, or at minimum, to undermine KPK in its work. People don't really pay attention to this densus anti-corruption, but I'm very suspicious, to be very honest with you. So what I'm trying to say here is that KPK has been constantly under attack. And the survival of KPK seems to rest solely in the public support of civil society and the president. Having said all those things, it is crystal clear to me that KPK must strive for its survival. In this respect, it is my opinion that KPK must maintain its institutional independence and integrity. Because it is what matters most. KPK must do more work on building the systems, the governance, by having more transparent and accountable mechanisms, by pushing for more bureaucratic reform. In this regard, it is important for KPK to rally public support to transform anti-corruption drive from the elitist movement to a social movement. Although we have quite a number of NGOs doing anti-corruption work in Indonesia, but I have to admit that we are still not able to rally public support for KPK. Because in my opinion, anti-corruption should be a popular movement of the society. It is important to keep in mind that the strength of KPK comes from the public and media, not merely from the law and the governmental policy. 
Therefore, it is the duty of KPK to continue going after the big fish for grand corruption, to target both judicial and political corruption. This is the way KPK repays its debt to the public for all the supports given to KPK. Let me close by quoting this statement from Warren Buffett. He said, look for three things in a person, intelligence, energy, and integrity. If they don't have the last one, don't even bother with the first two. And in my opinion, what is missing in this country is integrity. So how could you fight corruption without integrity? Thank you. All right, so I'd now like to welcome up our third speaker for tonight, Dr. Laude Sharif, um, who is currently a commissioner at the KPK in Indonesia with a term from 2015 to 2019. Before joining the KPK, he was a senior lecturer at Hasanuddin University in Makassar, and he's been teaching environmental law, international environmental law, and he's also developed anti-corruption and environmental law clinics at several law schools around Indonesia. He's also been a principal trainer for the Supreme Court of Indonesia. And as Simon mentioned earlier, he's an alumni of the University of Sydney. So we're very pleased to welcome him back to campus. Thank you. Please welcome him to the stage. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, first of all, thank you very much, Miss. Thank you, Simon, for organizing these uh, lectures. I love this place. <laughs> yeah, I miss the smell of the library and everything. So after almost two years in the KPK, I think I kind of like little bit lost my mind. But uh, coming back to Sydney Uni and sniffing the grass of main quadrangles kind of give me energy and especially your companions and your best wishes to the KPK always keep us moving. I'll try to be optimistic, but I think I cannot do it <laughs> at the moment because simply actually the picture has been actually explained by Simon and Bang Mulia. Yeah, it is actually the same as the picture they are going to present. But as again, for those of you who are not familiar with the KPK, the KPK actually established in 2003. It is independent from the executive, the legislatures, and the judiciary. We are responsible to the public, but financially we are audited by the Indonesian Supreme Audit Board, led by five commissioners, and I am one of them. At the moment, we have about 1,500 officers, but for the investigation and the prosecution side, we only have 275 at the moment. So most of our work are on the other part, 
which is actually prevention, monitoring, and coordination. Yeah, this is by law, the KPK duties and function as such coordinates with other law enforcement agencies in corruption issues, and also coordinate with government agencies to do prevention work. And we also do supervisions if, for example, the police or the authority general office, they have corruption cases in the region, but for example, they didn't have, or they lack an expert to count, for example, the state laws, the KPK can actually assist them. Or, for example, we receive a complaint from the public, they say, for example, they already investigate case more than one, two or three years, but actually never move, or sometimes actually close, then we can actually take over the case, but it is very rarely. And of course, we have a pre-investigation, investigation and prosecution, which is actually the most loved by press. If you look at our budget, most of our money actually go to prevention, but there is no news about prevention in Indonesian newspapers. Uh, they love the mayor get caught, the judges, the police, or the prosecutors get caught by KPK. And they love the orange jacket. So we are actually trying to focus on what we call this the strategic sectors, uh, which is actually related to national <coughs> interests like law enforcement. I would say this is actually the hardest one. Bureaucratic reform, energy, sovereignty, and environment, because we knew that actually this is natural resources are the source of the money, and one of the most corrupt sectors in Indonesia. Food sovereignty, plantation, fisheries, agriculture, because most of national budget actually go to this directions, education and health, and of course the source of state income like tax, customs, non-tax revenue, etc. And big infrastructures because the current president actually want to build a lot of things, bridge, jambatan, call it in Indonesia, and even if we want to do, we call it toll laut, it's marine toll road, this kind of a, so yeah, that's the main focus they are focusing on at the moment. What is actually the issues and challenges? I think the issues and challenges being actually covered by Bangulia and Professor Simon, but, but let me repeat it again. And according to the intelligence from Transparency International, 2017, we have 39, 38. So we just up one digit. This is creating another headache in my head. Simply because when I was inaugurated in the state palace, I promised the president, I said, we do hope because after we finish our terms, which is 2019, we hope the corruption perception index of Indonesia at least reach above 40. But it's been two years now and it's always one digit up. 
and I hope there is a change <laughs> because it's not yet officially <laughs> uh, announced. But if you look at actually, the, we start with 24 in 2006, for example. Now we actually reach 37, and if you look at Thailand and the Philippines, they are starting about almost 30, and they're going down. Including the Australian going down, but you guys actually up there. And the Malaysian, they started now with 50, now also they are going down. So hopefully, Indonesia can catch up about 40 by the end of our term as a commissioner. Another one, I think, is lack of support from political party. A political party sees the KPK as an enemy, including the ruling party, which is actually now under the Golkar and PDI Perjuangan and others. So it is quite difficult to do anti-corruption if you own parliament actually see you as an enemy. And in fact, I have to go back to Jakarta because next Monday I will, they already invited our full hearing with the commission too. They never give us support. They just try to dig everything that we have. And as just Paul Bangulia said, they want to take off all the power that we have. Yeah. It's tiring, but uh, yeah, that's a life. <laughs> yeah, and also bad quality of public services. So if you look at this, if you believe this data, location of improper payment, for example, I kind of like happy a little bit because Indonesia is number five, China is still number one, and Iraq, Nigeria, Gabon, for example. But compared to Gabon, Indonesia has to be down there. How come they actually beat by Vietnam? I mean, yes, sometimes if you look at all the figures and the statistics and things like that, you know, you feel like, okay, I've been doing this, you know, I think of my professional life. Of course, I'm not a commissioner because I, less than two years I become a commissioner. But I've been doing anti-corruption since in the last 20 years. But the good sign is it's never close. <laughs> but then again, yeah, we have to do it. And of course, now it's become more complicated because of advanced modus operandi of corruption. And for example, of source using puppet and offshore companies outside Indonesia, it is make it difficult for institutions like the KPK actually to investigate. And if you look at this guy, his name is Nazarudin. He actually established 38 companies to launder his money, his corrupt money. Some of them in Indonesia, some of them outside, so we cannot actually take them. And again, because all the accountants, the notary, and the lawyers, actually we call them gatekeepers, actually working in assisting them. So Bang Mulia also will tell your peers as those lawyers, it is making us so difficult to work, and especially if it is outside Indonesia.
Of course, we have very good relationship with SFO, with FBI, Australian Federal Police, or CPAB in Singapore, Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission. Most of the time, we work closely and good. But when it comes to some other country, African country, even China, for example, I still have two cases there. I went up to Beijing myself. Last minute, just two hours before I met the authority, and they say, very sorry, they canceled the meeting. I mean, yeah, it is painful sometimes. I mean, it is so, but it sometimes it's also quite easy because I teach international law sometimes, so I try to test whether those theory actually work in reality or not. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love this case. Yeah, for example, Rolls Royce and Garuda Indonesia, uh, it is actually a big case because now are uh, very difficult. These senior Rolls Royce employees agreed to pay 2.2 million to give a Royce Silver Spirit car to an intermediary and there was interference in this money so that actually tried to in persuade the director of Garuda Indonesia to buy engine from Rolls Royce. Before I joined the KPK, I don't know if you want to buy a plane just like Quartus. You buy the body of aeroplane, not include the engine. After you have the plane, that you have to buy the engine. And the engine only three for Boeing or Airbus. Trent, Rolls-Royce, and other Britney and Whitney. Yeah. And so those three giant companies actually competing each other. And look at this is not Toyota Kijang. <laughs> in Jakarta, I mean, it's a small car or like a, a Datsun here. This big, giant, and involving the operation all across the world. So if a company like Rolls-Royce and Siemens and Volkswagen actually still doing those, compared to, for example, Indonesian company. And because all of a sudden I got a call from SFO and say, Sharif, can you help us? And I say, what can I help you? Can you send your investigator one or two to Singapore? And I say, for what? I think we have a suspicious on one transaction from Rolls-Royce to Singapore. And this may be implicating Garuda Indonesia, and I say, no, the headquarters here in Jakarta. Yeah, so that's why we ask you to send one or two investigators to Singapore. Rolls-Royce sent, and we found <coughs> Puppet company. It's not, they are actually buying Rolls Royce. But if you look at their companies, just like 7 Eleven, yeah, even smaller than 7 Eleven. So they try, they give it actually to the director of Goda Indonesia, but not directly 
they make a small company and I shall launder it in there. And so it is make it so difficult to work on anti-corruption, especially cross borders. Fortunately, fortunately, it is only people with a big knowledge can do that. The mayor, the governor, sometimes they do not have a patience to do those. They like cash transactions. <laughs> and even difficult, because you cannot trace the bank record. You cannot trace the transaction. It is so difficult. For example, the highest fine for foreign corruptions, uh, FCPA violation, the top two actually involving Indonesia. Alstom's and Siemens. I think this has been said by Bang Olya and Professor Simon, but I don't want to say they are corrupt, but I say this is actually uh, the police, the prosecutor, and the Supreme Court. Yeah, I think the integrity of law enforcement agency need a special attention for improvement. Now I become very diplomatic. <laughs> because I will not say they are corrupt. No? I mean, so, so that's why when I tell Liz whether he wants to take this or to record my presentation, I said, okay, let me think after this. <laughs> yeah, public complaint on judiciary. The Constitutional Court, in it just 2000, uh, 2004 and 2019, for example. And the District Court, we received more than 2,875 complaints. <coughs> if 10% of deaths of those complaints are true, then So that, that's the, the, the pictures, uh, the green picture of Indonesia. I have a better picture. So you have actually the web of elections and uh, chief justice of constitutional court. And this is actually the prophet of legal profession in Indonesia, but he took bribes from those people. <coughs> and we sent him actually to jail for life. This is actually the highest sentence so far. And I have to thank the Supreme Court for doing so. You can take a picture before I move, Simon. <laughs> yeah. And he accepted 4.2 million bribe from three candidates. And of course, he also laundered his money through small companies. And some of them, it's not as sophisticated like Garuda, but he used his driver, said the director, of that small company and others. But I think the real test of KPK today is this guy. <laughs> yeah, we just lost the pre-trial pre move. And the judge said in his decision, because the evidence that we presented to the court has been used by other accused, the accused. Of course, if you do the crime together, 
we can actually use that particular or two or three evidences to charge the second person, the third person. That's what we learned in the law school, including in this law school, I mean, that law school. So sometimes, you know, I teach law, but how come it's now it is so different? But that's the reality. And of course, when we ask him to come for interview, he got sick. He went to hospital. <laughs> but today, I just received a good news. He's already in the parliament, so it means he's actually good in a good health now. So <laughs> let's pray for him now. Odd. When you ask me to make like a prospect, so what's prospect in front of me? I'm tired already. <laughs> but, okay, let me think. What is prospect? Yeah, we are still alive. <laughs> the Bible was. I mean, yeah, because in the past, uh, physical attack, criminalization, Agus Rahajo has been actually reported to the police uh, twice now. I don't know me uh, and other commissioners. Uh, yeah, but yeah, we're still actually smiling in the pictures, at least. Uh, in the real life, I rarely actually smile. But, uh, and I think this is actually the main actually support. You guys, the people are united behind the KPK. And I think the politicians know it, including the president. So if we lose hope, oh, for example, I've seen many Indonesian faces here. Yeah, if you finish your study, come back again to Jakarta, because when I finished my study here, I was almost dead. <laughs> I start teaching and then say, uh, you start teaching now, I'm going back to Jakarta. And I say, I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. Because living here, it is much, much easier. The problem actually predictable, including the decision of the judges, not in our court, even though in anti-corruption court, it's predictable. But the pre-trial movement, a pre-trial hearing, ah, it is day by day become unpredictable. So we thank the people who keep actually still have a trust on us. And I was asked actually by, I think, realtors at that time, won't make you actually join the KPK. You want to be applied because, and I said, yeah, because a friend of mine actually pushing me to, to apply. And I said, no, no. I mean, the more deep down reason why. Because every, the selection of commissioners, I have a special project trying to find the good people from Sumatra to Papua. I've been assisting the KPK 
since before it's born, I think, uh, with our organization. Yeah. And we always try to find the good people. And those people say, uh, yes, I, this is the last one. So I want to use my two minutes. <laughs> uh, say that, okay, the previous one, when I tell you Bambang and Abraham Samad uh, apply, and I say, okay, can you guys try to find some people and say, okay, why don't you just apply yourself? You keep asking us to find the good people. And I say, no, no, it is okay to walk from behind, you know. And they say, no, you have to apply. And I promise them, okay, next time I may be applied. So when another project that I have, try to find some people and they start, no, you promised us four years ago, you are going to apply. So I apply. And I got selected. But I think deep down, why I actually want to join the KPC? I think and including those people. Because they still see KPK as a, a beacon of hope for Indonesia. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. to invite our three speakers up to the front just while they're getting set up so um, I think we'll take uh, three questions at a time um, and please do keep your questions to questions um, comments and long preambles will be cut off um, if you have more than one question um, please keep it to one for the start and if we've got time we can come back around for second questions Oh, it's you. Yep. Thank you, thank you. Fantastic. Just the uh, speakers, just really illuminating. Uh, somebody has been trying to understand that wonderful country uh, for so many years now. Um, I'm always a bit lost on why Indonesia, the thing about the bad apples, the thing about the question of uh, the theory of why Indonesia has suffered so badly with this, and some of the stuff relates to whether or not it's cultural, I think we can knock that on the head, whether or not it's to do with the character of the uh, post-independence development of cronyism or whether or not it's connected to the character of the post-Reformasi uh, 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 era of decentralisation. I just wondered if there's any sort of general gist of an understanding of the theory of the origins of Indonesian corruption. Thanks. Okay. If you could pass the mic over here. Okay, thank you. Uh, quick questions to Pa uh, Mulia Lubis and Pa Lodi. Uh, can we say that Indonesia now, after uh, democratized and decentralized for the past 17 years, Indonesia is more corrupt than Indonesia during Suharto? If it is the case, and the polit political parties are the main enemy of the current KPK, so does it mean that uh, our democracy is basically fueled by corruption? So it's kind of contradictory. We hope something from democracy, but at the same time, the democracy itself is, is sustained by the corruption. Okay, and just in front of you there. Thank you very much for a really wonderful presentation. 
I'm concerned as a lawyer to see the number of lawyers and judges <laughs> who've been <laughs> convicted there. What happens after somebody's convicted, goes to jail, can they then return to the legal profession? Mm. Is their right to practice taken from them? What happens to judges after they've been convicted? So maybe we'll start with um, Professor Olivia. Okay. Well, I'm with you. I've been lost many times, you know. <laughs> Trying to understand Indonesia is not easy, you know, even though I'm an Indonesian. Yeah. There have been so many things I cannot answer. <laughs> now, so when you're talking about genesis of anti-corruption, movement in Indonesia or fight Indonesia. Well, I believe, you know, uh, the idea of fighting corruption is not a new idea. Sukarno started also fighting anti-corruption, although the government in itself was very corrupt. The same with Suharto. Yeah? There were a number of institutions set up. And that's why I said only KPK is the one that the most serious institutions in fighting corruption ever set up in this country. Again, I'm not saying that KPK has, not, has made no mistakes, you know, uh, has no weakness. It does have some weaknesses. Uh, informally, we discussed this with the commissioner of KPK that yeah, we need to reform also the whole organizations because they are also complain about KPK. But compared with other legal agencies, I must say KPK is the most credible agency of anti-corruption in Indonesia. And the most successful one. Now, fighting corruption is really something that to do with the systems. I don't believe corruption is cultural. Yes, there's a notion of cultures that giving bribe is part of gratefulness, terima kasih. But if you live in an environment where the system does not allow you to corrupt, the system will defeat the culture. People talk about Asian values, where the values itself tolerate corruption. But what happened with the Singapore? People are so law obedient. People from Indonesia who went to Singapore complied with the law, even though they don't like it. I'm not saying that corruption has no, uh, Singapore is an ideal country. I do criticize Singapore for having uh, 90 uh, 
Corruption Perception Index Score because Singapore keep preaching that Indonesia should uphold the rule of law, have good governance, clean their house, but Singapore yeah, is a place for corrupt money. Yeah? So I don't agree with the Corruption Perception Index. Yeah. It is a double standard. Uh, I criticize that when I chair of the Transparency International uh, chapter in Indonesia. The second question is, Indonesia is more corrupt or not compared with Suharto or Sukarno? It's hard to say. Yeah. Uh, I, I should say that we've done more than what's done by Suharto's governments and Sukarno's. We've sent people to jail more than the previous governments did. But whether we are less corrupt or more corrupt, I, I still believe that corruption is very systemic, widespread, and most of the people are still quite, quite free to do corrupt, yeah, to, to corrupt because, because the system allowed them yeah, to, to corrupt. So that, especially when you talk about petty corruption, yeah, uh, I, I don't talk about petty corruption because yeah, most of people do that. Yeah? Even though in their statement, in their uh, policy, they said, well, I don't agree with corruption, but they do bribe the chamat, they do bribe the lura, they do bribe the police officers to get the, uh, the driving license. So that's where we are at the moment. Improvement, yes, there's, there's an improvement, but it is a piecemeal improvement. We need to do more than a piecemeal improvement. The last question, can corrupt uh, guy return to the legal profession? Well, uh, I suppose they can't. Not to the, to be, uh, if, if they are judges, of course they cannot be, uh, rejoin the, the bench anymore. They'll be uh, out of the, of the bench, you know. But if they are lawyers, I don't think there's any rule at the moment to prevent them from rejoining, you know, the legal profession. That is something. But I guess, you know, we need to, yeah, to do something on this. Um, Dr. Sharif, do you have any comments? Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, I think the first question has been actually addressed by Bangulia, but Muhammad Hatta is the first vice president of Indonesia in 1961, said, do not let corruption become part of Indonesian culture. That's what he said in 1961 when he start feeling uneasy with Sukarno. Yes, sometimes we say 
me myself i don't believe that indonesian cultures actually corruption is part of my cultures or bang mulia cultures because geographically we came from different parts of indonesia i come from the east which is actually closer to australia and he came from sumatra from the west but i don't think that actually corruption is a part of culture but but again if you look at the practice what actually we define cultures if you keep doing it every day it may not be a culture but it's become maybe a custom <laughs> because for example in the past during Suharto time if you want to have like a small license of from like the village or sub district level they always ask for uang makan which is such a forget lunch money or cigarette money and when become modern they call it pulsa money pulsa it is actually for mobile phone uh, uh, or photocopy money uh, uh, and you have those from sumatra up to papua they have uh, the language uh, they have it it is not part of culture but if you want to deal with the government then you have to 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 provide a small tips uh, or big tips or big tips sometimes <laughs> it depends uh, if you just want to have like a marriage certificate you because you have to have like a what is called surat keterangan in english uh, uh, explanation letter <laughs> you cannot say that yeah from from lura for example okay to prove you are single so i'll give you this letter so you can actually go to the court you have your marriage for example that's kind of like a simple usually now even now they already have that so because we ask local government to have like a special sign in their office the cost of every licenses or permit or whatever you call a service mm. but for example say it for two dollars if you want for your id card for example you give it two dollars deep down some people say thank you very much for your service they add more not only two dollars as a thank you just like my friend here yuna for example he used to work in ngo in indonesia uh, on budgetary what you call it you yeah amphitra for example they've been doing this and we see them everywhere so whether it is part of a culture or not i won't agree that it is part of the culture but it is widespread practices to make it as a comparison for example we just receive the king salman in jakarta <laughs> from saudi arabia 
And to my surprise, he come with a lot of gift. <laughs> and the gift, it is not cigarette money. It is emeralds, ruby, diamonds, watches which is I don't know actually exist. Because the brand is, I never heard of it. Maybe Bang Mulya know. But I, <laughs> no, me, not me, not me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because he's a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's rich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, for example, the president just called us and he said, through his secretary, he received uh, a gift from the king. So one of my officers actually, I asked her, I asked him to go to the palace and examine the gift. It is diamond, ruby, pearls, everything. It worth 54 billion rupees or about yeah, five million. Uh, five million, five million US dollars. This is a gift in the box with the banners of Saudi Arabia, you know what I mean? Uh, and the first president worth about more than uh, four million, less a little bit. And we got from many ministers and including Setiano Fanto, but he reported one, which is actually the Kiswa of the Kaaba, which is the curtain of the Kaaba. And it's the curtain of the Kaaba actually changed almost every year, and they cut it in several pieces. And actually the embroidery actually from gold. Uh, I saw actually given to Setiano Fanto, and he reported. Some people say, I think he received more. <laughs> <laughs> Not on the curtains, you know. But, but, but to tell you, this is a culture, or this is a practice, or is this what? Uh, and to cut the story short, we ask the president, based on the law, we have to take it to our office. And they say, take it. But do you have a safe there? to put this very precious gift. And I say, not yet. Uh, so we said, okay, can we just put it, you give your consent, this is belong to the state, and we'll give it to the museum, state museum. But we don't have it yet. We say, yeah, in the future, we will actually put it there. So the second, uh, for the vice president, with his wife present, before actually we took it to our office, the vice president already knew, guessed the price. And say, I think this one about like more than five millions, mine maybe around four to five million. Yes, dollar. That's what he said. And when we went to the, the expert, yeah, he knew it. And with why? Your guess is actually right. Yes, of course I know those kind of things. Better than the president. <laughs> <laughs> He's a rich man. And, and, and uh, uh, Giri, the director of gratification in my office, say uh, in, in Indonesian language, 
to the second lady. Uh, uh, excuse me, Bu Kala, we will take it to our office. And she said, okay, just take it. I have a bigger one. I love it. <laughs> so, 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 so I have a bigger one. <laughs> but yes, she is rich. <laughs> yeah, but, but this is a culture. Oh, no. So when they invited me, the Nazar, they have also anti-corruption agency in Saudi Arabia. And I'm about to say it. Please, if you come to Indonesia, do not bring big gift like that. But I kind of, I better not saying it. Uh, and I got a date, good date, <laughs> in a box <laughs> after the presentation. But I have to report it also in my office. <laughs> uh, so the second question, it is actually very, very interesting one. If we compare during Suharto time and now, I think Suharto time, it is widespread, but predictable. His family, his inner circle, the Bupati, the governors. And usually it is common knowledge that they cut 10% of the national budget. Forgive me, Ibutin Suharto, actually his wife, they call it 10%. Ibutin, but Ibutin 10%. Yeah, so, so that's what's actually the rumors. But today is based on our stint operation. Yeah, it is still there, 10%. Some mayors, some governors, they even go more than 25% of the budget. Why? Now I can understand. Democracy, it is not cheap. Fault buying during Suharto time almost non-existent. Because everybody expected to vote for Golka. If I'm a public service, because I teach in state university, if I vote for others, they will say, you know, they can just send me to jail, for example, with no reason. But now, every mayor, every governor, they need a billion rupiahs to be selected as a member of parliament or the bupatis or the governors. So I don't know but, uh, whether Suharto time are more corrupt than the current one, but I think I kind of like prefer the current one. Because during Suharto time, there is no kind of like a sanction. Now, even the police, they investigate and prosecute corruption. Of course, KPK and the authority general office. But still widespread. Whether the legal profession can actually go back, the prosecutors, the police, or if it's actually no, they stop. But the politicians, there are many examples. Many mayors convicted of corruption, we send him seven years in jail. After serve his term, 
he came and again won elections. <laughs> Not one, and in many. So that's why now, in our indictment, we also include mencabut hak politik. Actually, take off, take revoking. It is his political right, which is actually too much. But yeah, there are some decisions like that, revoking his political right so that he cannot become a mayor or member of parliament again. I think that's all for me. Not talking too much. Not much, but I think the field's been covered very well here. About whether you can, or comparing the Sahato and the post-Sahato periods, studying corruption is quite difficult because you can never really tell how much is at stake because people do everything possible to cover their tracks. So it's very hard to compare on a, on a, on a financial basis, I suppose. Um, the impression, though, that I get at least, looking from the outside, not working in the system like um, um, Bangwulia and, and Lode, uh, is that with the proliferation of local governments in Indonesia in the post-Sahado period, there's a proliferation of opportunities for corruption, or at least people who have power um, who might not have had it before under Sahato, that was taking orders back then, now have freedom to, to, to try and um, extract as much as they can while they're in office. Uh, and I think it's important to remember that they, most of them who are um, kind of our age now, uh, or a bit older, would have grown up watching the perfect example that Sahato set for so many years, how to, how to make as much as you can while you're in office. Take advantage of the opportunity that you have. Uh, and so you see um, in some of the literature, uh, you know, regents, mayors, governors being described as little kings, you know, little, um, you know people who have as much power as, as, uh, as they do, um, most of whom are paid what you said, you know, a million dollars to get uh, into office, having to re recoup that money and then make it worth their while. Um, the system is, is designed to to fail in terms of, of corruption. Um, so I think um, uh, what Sharif said is, is true about the fact that during Sahato it was quite predictable. Now you don't know quite who you're supposed to pay in order to, to get your permit or to um, you know, get your driver's licence or um, to do business in a regional area. Is it okay to pay money to the central government or now do you have to pay money to other... <coughs> people involved in, you know, giving you permission to run your, your business, for example. Um, I, I mean, you, you hear the, um, the, the, the claim that corruption is part of Indonesian culture, and I suppose when it's been practised for so long, um, particularly in government, perhaps you could say that it's the way that things are done in Indonesia, but I just find it hard to reconcile saying that Indonesia is corrupt, is culturally corrupt, um, with the fact that so many Indonesians hate it. And there's so much support for the KPK. Um, if that wasn't the case, then if, the, if that support wasn't there, then perhaps you could, you could make an argument. But the fact that there's so much behind the KPK, the fact that the KPK hasn't been wiped out yet by the parliament <laughs> um, indicates that Not a lot yet. of people hate corruption.
And um, I find it hard to reconcile that with a cultural uh, claim. <coughs> We've still got 10 minutes, <laughs> um, so I might take a couple more questions um, and ask the panel to keep their responses brief. Um, so there's one question at the back. Go ahead. Okay, thank you very much for the opportunity. I really appreciate what uh, the achievement of Kapika so far. I just want to know about the, many people are worried about the possibility of abuse of authority of power by KPK. I just want to know, probably Pak pa Laude can explain us about the internal or external oversight mechanisms in KPK so the people are no longer worried about the possibility of abuse of power in KPK. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to the panel for the very insightful presentations. I was wondering how much support, um, how, what is the influence of the international community and international law in the fight against corruption in Indonesia, or is this is purely a domestically driven initiative? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Can I have two questions, actually? No. no? <laughs> <laughs> we don't have time. Our best one. Uh, okay, just one then. Uh, to Pat Laude, uh, it's glad to hear that uh, KPK said the, mo the, uh, the finance mostly is spent for prevention. I agree with that, it's very important. But I haven't seen anything this, this thing about the prevention of corruption in Indonesia as, as a common people in Indonesia. Like, let's say, but uh, uh, Todu said uh, integrity is very low in Indonesia, I agree about that. But what KPK has done to increase the integrity there's nothing in our education to improve the integrity of young generation now. And the second... Uh, okay, uh, that was one No, 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 no. <laughs> it's still related. Uh, it's very sad to see the presence of Kepika in the social media very low, say Instagram. Kepika uh, should have a good campaign in Instagram to tell people this is what we're doing. So people know and keep supporting Kepika. And now, like, that's part of prevention. And... Uh, I just checked uh, Kepika Instagram, official Instagram, it's only 69 uh, posts. It's very... Mm, okay, I'm going to cut you off there. Sorry. If you have um, you. suggestions for Kepika media relations, maybe you can talk to um, Pat Sharif afterwards. Can I, I, just, I, just wanna, I don't really have... This, these questions are directed to my friends up here, uh, my other friends up here. Um, but I just wanted to address the issue about abuse of... So it's a very powerful organisation. It has all sorts of um, powers that ordinary police prosecutors don't have, wiretapping, that kind of thing. But the obsession with um, kind of who watches the, the watchdogs in Indonesia, mm. I always find troubling. Um, the buck's got to start somewhere. Mm. In a functioning system, yeah. the Kapeka would be prosecuting to the full extent of the law any case that it wanted to. Bang Mulia, the defence lawyer, would be defending the, the, the person accused of corruption to the full extent of the law, and he would be raising questions of abuse of power before the court. And this would be part of the judicial proceedings. And you, of course, need an objective adjudicator. I can be that if you'd like. But, um, but in that kind of system, you have a, a, an external mechanism that makes sure 
that the kappa car doesn't kappa car doesn't exceed its powers. If 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 the the convict or the defendant has um, uh, been improperly wiretapped or um, evidence has been obtained in an illegal way, in other words, if the KPK has exceeded its authority, then that should play out in the judicial proceedings. It shouldn't, res it shouldn't um, require the KPK itself to monitor itself before it brings the case. That's just the way that I would see a functioning system working. You start with I tend to talk a lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you very much for the abuse of our KPK. I think I would like to assure you that I think I may be biased, but in the past I've been assisting the police and the Attorney General Office and the Supreme Court. <coughs> the internal rules within the KPK, it is very, very rigid including, for example, even though by law we can actually wiretap someone, but it has to be signed by the five commissioners. Before five commissioners actually sign, it has to go another four step. Directors of look after their complaint handling, the directors of investigation, the director of pre-investigation, the director of investigation, and after that go to the deputy for prosecution, and lastly to us. So we cannot, for example, this is what the parliament always actually uh, 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 worry about. We may actually misuse our power for white tapping, for example. In the past, before the decision of the Supreme or the Constitutional Court. The one and only law enforcement agency audited by the Ministry of Information and Communication for our wiretapping. For information, the police, the prosecutors, the intelligence unit, the terrorist, uh, counter-terrorist agency, they do all wiretapping. But the parliament always, you know, concentrate on the KPK. They say, you guys are actually abusing your power, including for culprit-handed and things like that. But I want to assure you that it is difficult. So that's why people behind the establishment of a KPK, not actually led by one commissioner, but five, Within itself, it is already check and balances. And we have internal mechanism. So our inspectorate, even me, I'm watched by them, including, to give you an, an extreme example, my driver. Bef actually only a week, after I joined as commissioners, from my house, I was, I, I was kind of like too early. So I passed Setiabudi building. In that particular building, they have a coffee shop. So it is about like a 300 meters from the KPK office. So I asked my driver, said, 
This is only 7.30, too early to the office. Well, just me, drop me first to that Starbucks. I want to have my coffee. And my driver said, can you guarantee in that coffee shop, maybe someone actually have something to do with the KPK? Why don't you just buy you a coffee, take away, mm. and you drink it in your office? My driver do that to me. I mean, I don't really think in other government institutions in Indonesia, they have that very strict rule. But then again, thank you very much for reminding me, but this is good so that we can actually look after ourselves, not to go beyond our power. Okay, I, we're, yep, we're getting very close to running out of time, so what I might do is ask... I think we can ask questions maybe after the event. Um, I might just get uh, us to close with um, Professor Rubis commenting on the question related to international influence and um, how the Indonesian anti-corruption movement is engaging with broader international um, groups as well. Well, there have been uh, a lot of supports from international uh, community uh, outside Indonesia toward KPK. And we are grateful for that. And I know that IMF, for instance, at the moment is conducting a research on KPK. It has not been published yet, but yeah, it is, it is part of the support you know, given to KPK. But let me, uh, give me one minute, please. Because I think your concern is a legitimate concern. Uh, at one point, I was appointed by President Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono at the time to be a team to investigate the conflict between KPK and the police. Now, so we, 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 we heard so many complaints about KPK. Yeah. And I do believe, I do think that some of the complaints are legitimate, legitimate com complaint. And we have to do something about that. Now, with regard to the wiretapping, yeah, that is something that people criticize KPK. And initially, I also believe that wiretapping should, uh, can only be done if the KPK got the stipulation determination from, from the court. They cannot do it themselves. Although I know the internal mechanism within KPK. But knowing that Indonesian judiciary is so corrupt, and two weeks ago, the head of the North Sulawesi Provincial uh, High Court was detained by KPK in testing operations, I think it is not the time yet for us to have that procedures, to get the stipulation determination from the court, you know, in order to wiretap. At the moment, I still can tolerate the KPK doing that. But later on, we need to do it, you know, legally with that, uh, procedures. So this is an emergency situation and we cannot, you know, really have a normal operation against, against corruption. So this is an abnormal situation. Okay. Well, I'm very conscious of time, so we might rough it up there. That's okay. Um, if you could join me in giving our guests one more round of applause. <laughs> Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.